Welcome to another Scots Wayhay podcast. In this podcast, uh, I spoke to Lou McLaughlin, um, a director and cinematographer. Um, I specifically wanted to talk about her film, which came out last year, called 16 Years Till Summer. It's an astonishing documentary, um, which I reviewed on Scots Wayhay, and that review's still there. Um... Everyone I know who has subsequently seen it um, is just amazed by the story that unfolds. It really does show, I think, that true life uh, is far more complex and intriguing than than fiction could ever be. Lou, I also wanted to talk to Lou about just documentary making in Scotland in general and she talks about how difficult it is to kind of get noticed in Scotland. Um, a lot of documentaries go to festivals around the world, get picked up and praised and, and, and win awards, but yet it's difficult for them to get uh, recognition here. Um, it's just a timely podcast, I think, with the Glasgow Film Festival just about to start, or perhaps even started by the time you hear this. And there are some fantastic documentaries on show there as well, which you should really check out. And there is a preview of the Glasgow Film Festival over at Scotsway right now. But um, before you read that, have a listen to Lou McLaughlin. It's a very interesting discussion for anyone interested in film. And uh, I'll see you again after this. Cheers. Hello everyone and welcome to another Scots Wahey podcast and today I'm talking to Lou McLaughlin, uh, director and cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Hello Lou. Hello. And we're talking to you, well partly because of your film 16 Years Till Summer which came out earlier this year but also we're going to talk about documentary making and how important it is in general. Sure. Um, but first of all tell us a little bit about 16 Years Till Summer. Well, uh, 16 Years Still Summer, I guess, is my first feature uh, film after making a short called Caring for Callum. Um, it took about five years to make. It was a co-production with um, Iceland and the German TV company and, uh, and, and, and some others. Um, and basically, it wasn't a film I ever planned. It was I, I was just earning my way through a postgraduate at ECA, where there's a fantastic course that's producing a lot of really really interesting um, fiction film, sorry, non-fiction filmmakers um, taught by Emma Davy, who's, who's pretty renowned in her own right as a tutor and a filmmaker. Um, anyway, so I was, I was working across the prisons and I was um, in uh, Castle Huntley and a man uh, came up to me who had been part of the, the, the group that we were filming and he said, um, I'm g- going home on home leave. Um, my family's lived on the same patch of land for the last 200 years. Um, would you like to come with me and film me with my father? Because I don't know how long he's got left. And I'd love some memories of him in case I'm not released in the foreseeable future. So I said, yes, of course, I can do that. So what unfolds without kind of giving anything away is pretty mm. extraordinary. Mm. Because um, it begins, as you say, with um, him and uh, making a, a reconnection, is that fair, with his elderly father. Mm. And it's this wonderful, I think, warm 
father-son relationship mm. where the father is still kind of treating him like yeah. a young man and telling him how to do the garden. <laughs> yes, and, isn't he? You know, he is the patriarch exactly, and always will be. Exactly, yes. but then this darker story unfolds. I mean, was that a surprise to you? Yes, it was, because I thought it was a story about hope. I thought it was a story about a father's um, unconditional love for his son, and I thought it was all going to end beautifully with something very good coming out of something bad. Um, And I thought Ustin would end up setting up his croft and living a very idyllic and idealised Highland life, and I'd have a film with a really happy ending. And that's not what happens. That's not what happens, but it, it nearly kind of happens. Yeah. And I thought that's the way it was going to go. Yeah. Um, and then something happens to stop that. And, and you know, well, I, I shouldn't give, it, I give the film away. No. Um, and then after that, he meets this extraordinary woman yeah. with this superhuman love for him. Absolutely. And again, I thought, oh, great. Something is going to be redeemed from this. It's, it's, it's going to be really positive. Maybe I'm just a bit of a schmuck, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, and again, I, I can't give away the end, but something happens at the end that just completely shocked me again. It made, made me feel that maybe I was a bit naive or optimistic, or I don't know. But I think it shows that often you know, real life is more complex and, than fiction could ever be. Because I think if someone had written this... Mm. These two storylines, as you say, mm. kind of don't go the way that perhaps you would expect them, don't follow a normal narrative. Yes. Um, they, people would say, well, that's just ridiculous. Mm. I mean, I know some people that have watched it kind of with incredulity that, you know, mm. what unfolds, unfolds in the way it does. Mm. Um, I, think, I think when you're watching somebody's life unfold through the eyes of two people that, that love them. Mm-hmm. You can't help but see them and film them through those eyes. So I'm, I'm filming him with the same amount of faith he's, he's, being, he's being seen with by his, his dad and his partner. Um, and, he, and it's just occasionally you get the chance to pull away from that and say, well, actually, okay, things don't completely add up here. The things that are being spoken about, for instance, in the past with the original crime, they don't all together add up his account of things and what the states made yeah. of what he'd done, you know, did, didn't make sense when you looked into it a bit more. But then you could also understand the, the shame that somebody carries when they go home to a small place yeah. and they're trying to not impress their, their father but be worthy of him. Yeah. And you can understand why that would produce a very partial recall of something. Absolutely, of course. And I guess the thing is, we don't hang people. Um, We do give them a second chance. So it was just willing somebody to actually make the best of that. I mean, that's what I took from the film was it was about faith and faith in people Mm. and, as you say, unconditional love and, and how... Far, I suppose that can be stretched. I mean, that sounds odd because it's unconditional. It's unconditional, mm. but um, it's never completely it's, it's never unconditional. Complete. It can't yeah, be, can it? Exactly. Be exactly. Well, it's a fantastic film. I have to say, I really, uh, I've watched it a couple of times now, and you get something new from it. I think uh, the second time round, definitely, because you suddenly all the, the, the twists, for want of a better term, that come along they don't shock you in the same way therefore the other stuff kind of mm. comes along I was in, in, interested in the way it looks as well I mean it's it's got a real connection with nature and the landscape um, I should say it's filmed up near what, what's the village it's filmed in? It's um, Locarren Well done sorry I could be testing you in this way um, so it's up so it's kind of Port Nacree it's, it's a part of Locarren yeah, yeah. Um, so it's beautiful 
I mean, it's, it's a beautiful it's place, yes. You know, it's, it's a very empty place. I mean, if, if you, it's huge, intimidating, yeah. or very, very beautiful landscapes, depending on what the and weather I think it's looks a, like. It's a part of Scotland that still is overlooked a lot. You know, um, we tend to concentrate um, even our documentaries on central belt and urban um, stories, um, um, and to see this kind of where um, his father's cottages or these houses is just this stunning view from mm, it. I mean, mm, it's amazing. Mm. Um, so did the subject uh, affect the way you shot the film or did you always, or did you have a style that you think, this is, you know, I'm going to apply my style to what oh, I'm no. filming? Yeah, no, I, w- I wouldn't do that. I know some filmmakers do do that. They have a style or a language that they want to impose on a story. But I think what, I, what I'm really interested in is, is finding the language from the story that's right to tell the story with. Um, and some parts of the, that are really obvious and some parts of that are probably more felt. So I suppose when you're trying to paint a character portrait and you're using film, you can do things like use the rhythm of the edit or you can use... Well, for instance, with, with Ustin, his character is a kind of... has a real stop-start energy yeah. to it. He's sort of very lyrical and flowing and then tends to sort of interrupt his own progress by doing that's something erratic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's in the edit. And, and you know, and I don't expect anybody to notice this, but I do expect them to feel it when they're watching it. So, for instance, there's a scene where, obviously, he's been in prison too long to have a, a, to have a, a child or, or a family. Yeah. So he puts a newborn lamb, you know, on his father's lap in, instead of a grandchild, perhaps. You could see yeah. Yeah. As, in that way. Um, and at the end of that scene, convention would say it's a happy scene, it's a lovely coming together scene. Give the audience a breather. Let them have a white shot of this beautiful croft, you know, by, by moonlight. You know, yeah. wouldn't that be lovely? Just, just, just let them relax around that scene. But because of him being who he is and not wanting to build up the wrong expectations in the audience, you know, yeah, I could then interrupt that and not give the resolving shot with him in the armchair saying, you know, there's not a lot of a social life here. Yeah. So so you never let the audience breathe out because I find that he doesn't. Yes. You know, so it's just a case of being honest about what you're filming. So the language comes out of him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. As a character, as a person, he has this um, energy. Mm. Constantly, constantly making up new plans, mm. constantly have ideas. He, he always has mm. plans for the future, mm. um, which makes sense, doesn't it? As yeah, well, of it does, because yeah. if you've been in prison for sixteen years, of course you're going to be full of plans. So that's not an obvious marker at first of him being, you know, unusually ambitious yeah. or eager to burn himself out in that way. Until you're around him for a bit longer, and then you, you realise there is a special energy around him. Um, how, I mean, you, you said earlier that you how it took six months to edit. Yes, yes, it did. So, yeah. how much footage did you actually have, considering I, how long you? Were... I didn't. Yeah, I counted. <laughs> <laughs> I don't it know. Too much. It was yes. It was what four years, five years, four years of footage. Yes, and I wasn't filming all the time. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was scarce with it. You know, I was thrifty, but but there was quite a lot. Yeah, it's like. It's it's what is that that thing? I, I think when you're making documentary, it's like it's like finding uh, that whispering voice under the rubble of an earthquake. That's the, that's where the story is, and you just have to listen very hard and dig hard <laughs> until you find. Okay, this is the consistent thread that's running through this film. I'm interested in how um, the story comes out in the edit because obviously you could take it in 
different ways, you know, mm. the, from what you have filmed. How you do you decide yeah. that this is the story that you want to tell? Well, I think I think there are two approaches. There's, there's two strands to this. You've got a, an outer story and an inner story. If you want formulas, and sometimes formulas do work yeah. to get to just get you on a steady sure. footing with a, with a, with a film. Sure. And I think so. So, so I suppose the outer story for me, the thing that would actually hold the film together would be his ambitions for that house. So you've got a very strong scene about what those ambitions are, yeah. you know. Uh, and I can't remember whether I included it, but I remember him standing in front of Loch Aaron, in front of the lock itself, and actually saying, you know, and I'll, I'm going to put, oh, I'm going to turn this garden, this 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 fruit, this veg garden of his dad's, into a water feature. And he's going to put water. <laughs> you're like, what? You've got this gorgeous lock behind you. What are you doing? <laughs> it's just ambition gone mad. Um, Anyway, so there's that, and that carries through because at the second half, half of the film, you know, these ambitions for the house, yeah. you know, come half, yeah. to come come to nothing. He thought he was going to be the heir, yeah. you know, and and that's all thrown up into the air. So that was the consistent external story. But what's going on inside? For me, I suppose the the emotional truth of the film is what gets sacrificed when people are determined to see the best in each other, you know, because they love each other, yeah. and and nobody wants to come across that moment where you've got to start questioning yeah. that it's yeah. painful to yeah. face up to perhaps a reality that you don't want to face up to mm. yeah mm. Mm. and I think that comes to uh, himself as well you know I think he has to does he face up to it I'm not sure I think the thing I took about him you know wanting to build a water feature or wanting to extend or all this mm. it seemed to me that that was what a lot of people are sold as Normality, or what aspirational, or mm. you know what you should have. Mm. You know, it's a, mm. in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife and all of those mm. things. Mm. Um, you just created a talking head. Song. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. That's what I do tend to do that all the time. Okay. <laughs> but um, he and he sees that as being if he's one chance at happiness or, or normality, mm. or more than one chance. That's what's going to give him that instead of mm. actually the people that are showing them this, uh, mm. this support. Mm. I, suppose, I suppose also, yes, you've got a point, but also I think it's one of those basic human needs, isn't it, to have a foothold and a, and a home and a roof over your head mm. as well. And I suppose you don't yeah. know what he had planned inside that house, but yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I don't want to give anything away, so let's mm. move away on to the idea of, of documentary making in general. Mm. I mean, you mentioned there that you made this film. Oh, actually, Alistair, could I mention something else? Of there? course you can. Because you yeah. talk about ambition for a, for a spot, an area, or a landscape. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was doing this, I've been doing this really interesting kind of ex- extended screening, which we did at the Storytelling Centre. Yes. Um, with Hugh Cheap and Marion McFadden, who are both uh, creative ethnologists, and, and they, oh, they know so much about Scottish storytelling and brought so much to the interpretations of Scottish documentary making you know recent Scottish documentary making and we were talking about how the Highland landscape is seen as a really kind of seductive space Mm -hmm. and it's partly because it's an empty space it's an empty canvas that you can dream you can dream things onto Um, and it's seen very often especially since you know, the, the narrative of the clearances was made very, very strong with the, the Cheviot, the stag and the black, black oil. Yeah. It's seen as a, as a place of, of loss and imagination. Yeah. And, you know, a romanticised kind of loss, but, you know, something that needs re, rebuilding, yeah. either, either crying over or rebuilding. Yeah. Um, so I, I, think, I think the film in that way falls into it and in that he looks at this space and says, you know, what can I do with it? You know, what can I build on its emptiness? 
And I think, and I think another part of that, as well as that Highland tradition, is the kind of kitschy. Landseer type yeah. ornaments you see on the shelves, you know, and they're a very idealised view of the Highlands again. Um, and it's an idol that nobody can live up to yeah, at all, at all. And but but he, but he does, as a character, find a lot of protection in donning the tweeds, you know, the plus fours. Absolutely. You know, he looks respectable when he puts them on, um, as opposed to looking like a, an old lag, you know, or whatever. It's um, it's a costume, mm, you know, he's going to be the layer of the, the manor. I think that's really interesting, I think, because that's an area that is, is romanticised, and actually the reality of it is, like many other parts of the country, jobs have been lost, there's high unemployment, there's drug problems in a lot of these areas, and people still don't see that or don't know about it, and, and still have this mythology of the Highlands and Islands as sold Mm -hmm. you know, through film previously, or in song, and it, it has changed recently, there's been a lot of novels um, Kevin McNeil's The Stornoway Way, um, various mm. others which have redressed that a little bit, but mm. you're and, right. And uh, uh, Hugh Cheap is really exciting as well because he talks about the, uh, the gales of the 1600s and how internationalist and um, outreaching they were to the rest of Europe just before the, the Scottish kings. And we were just having a bit of a, a flight of fancy about that and talking about how the documentary movement in Scotland was very like that as well. It's partly because of the lack of broadcast opportunities yeah. in Scotland and in the UK. We don't have distributors here. And BBC Scotland at the moment doesn't have a lot of slots or budget for things commissioned, yeah. you know, from Scottish talent. Um, so we tend to do a lot of co-productions internationally. So you said that you had um, co-produced with people from Iceland. Yeah. Um, so and I mean, Germany. So yeah. Can you say a bit more about the kind of lack of opportunities in Scotland? Is it just purely money or? or Places to get them shown, to get your films shown. I think I think there is that. I think we don't. We used apparently we used to have distributors here, mm -hmm. um, but we don't anymore. And I remember reading an article written by Sarah Main, right? And she was talking about how when she sent her <coughs> when she sent her manuscript for her novel to a publisher in London, you know, or a couple of publishers, they were a bit sniffy about it, you know. They, and, that's, and you kind of get that because they want to see their world reflected in what they read and what they sell. It's like sure. everybody does that. Um, and she's containing cultural references within her work, you know, that people in this place will get, but people in that place, in that metropolitan area, probably won't get. The same as in my film, it's got references that you won't probably get north yeah. of the border. You might, if you know Scotland a mm -hmm. bit, but you probably won't. Sure. So some of it will be lost on you. Um, and she was saying that it wasn't until she sent it to a Scottish publisher that it was appreciated for the work that it was, and then went on to be a bestseller in Canada, where, of course, they have, you know, a great knowledge of yeah. Scottish culture as well. So she was able to reach, have an international reach by being able to contact somebody or handle her work here. So going backwards from that, we don't have the equivalent of publishers here at the moment. Yeah. We don't have distributors. And I think until we get somebody in place, whether it's a nationalised body or attract somebody up here by making, for instance, the, the very successful non-fiction feature scene we have yeah. a lot more visible than it is, um, 
I, I, I'm not sure how much space we're going to win for ourselves within the independent cinemas or, or the chains. Um, the Scottish independent documentaries travel, do they do well in festivals and things like that? Are they well Fantastically popular? well, yeah, yeah. I mean, for instance, I'm thinking now about my, my tutor's film, Emma Davy. Um, her film, which is um, I Am Breathing. I was thinking about the trickers to keep breathing, so I've just read Janice Galloway again. But yes, I am breathing. That's, that went to 80 festivals internationally, wow. which is just incredible. Um, and it was, it was you know, broadcast as well in the UK, which was great for her. Um, my film has so far been to 30 festivals, which is fantastic. It's been, it's been broadcast in three different countries uh, on national TV. Wow. So... Um, yeah, and you just, and that's great, it's brilliant, it's fantastic to be exporting, you know, to, to have your talent exported with a lot of other Scottish filmmakers and be making a really good name for ourselves abroad. But you also really need a sustainable industry yeah. here. And just on a personal level, it's really nice when people see your stuff, of you course. know, where it's been made. Yep. That's, just, that's just pleasant. Um, yes, so... That, that's where we are at the moment. We need more broadcast slots, really. We need, ideally, we want a broadcaster, whichever one they are, to recognise we're good at feature non-fiction and to get a slot and a budget for it. So, in terms of um, just the nuts and bolts of getting films made, how difficult is that to do? I think it's really intimidating when you don't know how to do it. Right. But once you know which is the right pitching session, for instance, to go to, to flog your film at, yeah. you know, when you've just got a taster, you've got a three-minute taster of it and you can talk about where you think it's going to go and show that you're a, you're a stubborn enough git to actually see it through to the end, uh -huh. which apparently is a big thing with people broadcasting documentaries. They, they do have to think that the, uh, the director is, is bloody-minded enough or determined enough to actually <laughs> stick with it. Um, anyway, I think, I think once you've got your pitch right, you've got your festival right, then you're in contact with the people who can fund it. So, for instance, mm -hmm. um, Vision de Real were the, was the festival that I pitched my film to, right. um, which is where I picked up a, a pre-sale with um, BR, which is a, a, a really nice uh, German broadcaster. This is before it was made. Um, and I went there because they do creative documentary, they specialise in creative documentary, and they're very well aware of how, for, how narrow the format is. This is their words, not mine. Right, OK. But how narrow the format is of British TV. OK. So when they saw the, the, the teaser, as you call it, um, they realised that I was probably more likely to get European support than more London-based support for what I was, okay. I was making. Um, and they were, they were absolutely right, you know, they were very keen on it when I got there. So it isn't even that um, in Scotland it's difficult to get people to take notice of you making documentaries, it's a UK thing? Well, yes, it's very London-centred, right. to, to, to be honest. I mean, most of the commissioning goes on in London. And if you take a feature doc to BBC Scotland, as far as I know, and, and bear in mind they are changing and they've got the new BBC studios and, and they'll probably come up with a great system very, very soon. We're all hoping, hoping that they will and we'll give them whatever support they need to do that. Um, they, at the moment, have to go to London to ask for a budget for a film like, for instance, Where You're Meant to Be. They've just yeah. bought Paul Fagan's Where You're Meant to Be. Um, um, and uh, and they have to go to London for that budget, etc. Um, or they ask you to cut it down to an hour, which 
costs lots and lots and lots of money and is just in no way really economically yeah. viable to do and also doesn't often suit your film it wouldn't suit yeah, my film absolutely. I couldn't take 20 minutes out no, of it it would be not ridiculous at all. Not no. at all. Mm. So, um, why is it different in Europe? It's just got a better oh, can kind of I say something of else? Of course you can, yeah. You know, I missed out because it was right at the beginning. Yeah. This is quite interesting. Um, when I when I'd made the short film and it had got it had got the, the awards, it had got, it had got two new talent BAFTAs. It had got this ro- is caring for Carl. Yes. So, so I had this great sort of set of, 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 of medals behind me, if you like. Right, I, yeah. I had the, the New Talent BAFTAs, the Royal Television Society Award, and the Grierson. So it's like, well, come on, you know, that's, that's got to help get the feature funded. Um, <coughs> so I went to Reykjavik Film Festival and the Talent Lab there. And before I got there, I got in touch with a, with a producer in Iceland because I thought, now, we've just had a banking crash. Yeah. They were really feisty with the bankers. They beat their pots and pans outside the parliament <laughs> did, yeah. and refused to pay up. In fact, they, they took a lot of them to prison. You know, so I thought, well, these are these are these are quite fiery people, and maybe they'll take more of a risk than than producers sometimes are known to be a little bit averse to uh, with a new filmmaker, even with all the medals on just yeah. that with this one. So I went to Reykjavik and met somebody from Six Act Productions there, and he was he was a lovely guy, and um, he said yes, he was interested. And then I met their producer, Lynn Johannesdottir, and she really liked the shorts, and she said she wanted to take a punt on it. Right. So that was great. So actually, the first money I got for this Scottish production was from the Icelandic Film Centre, uh, from an Icelandic production company. And once you've got one producer on board, if we're talking about giving tips to upcoming yes, filmmakers, um, once you've got one backer on board, it always helps to get others. Right. Okay. So you know. So, so I came home. Yeah. With a vote of confidence in the film, and sort of took it from there, and then worked with the Scottish Documentary Institute, who are really good at helping me to develop it, and then yeah. Um, do you think there was something about your work that appealed to? The Icelandic, or we just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Because the TV company wanted it as well. So, yes, maybe there was, mm-hmm. but maybe it's the sort of the occasional barren lookingness of the landscape. Because some of their country just. I mean, it looks otherworldly. It looks like a it moonscape. Is, I've been there, and it's incredible. Mm. Um, no, the reason I ask that is I've, I've spoken to musicians from kind of Aberdeenshire and, and further north, and. Mm. Um, not all of them agree with this, but I say mm. some of the music sounds very similar to stuff that's being made in Sweden or um, in Scandinavia or Iceland. You know, there's that kind of ethereal sound, for want of a better term. And I wondered if there was something about the landscape that was similar and fed into it. And yes. I wonder if that's similar with the well, music. Maybe that's films, why we had a mixture of Icelandic musicianship in the film. And he very much represents the the fantasy element of the film and of the main character or the dreams of the main character yeah. um, and then we had seeing as you mentioned it yes. the Norwegians the Scandies uh, we had um, Marit Felt who did the oh no I'm going to have to remember what it is it's a Norwegian mandolin thing right, I can't okay. remember the name of it um, and we had uh, Rona Wilkie who play, they play together so you've got okay. it's a Scottish Norwegian uh, duet okay. um, and they're fantastic film composers 
and, and I can't recommend them highly enough if there's anybody out there looking for film composers they interpret scenes really really well and they earthed the film in the highlands they gave it that that, that sound yeah. that no other part of the world because you'd say the music is beautiful mm, isn't it really isn't is it, isn't it and they knocked it up so quickly as well you know they came up with the ideas then we compressed them to the scenes sometimes I recut the scenes to suit the melodies they come up with <coughs> and Sorry. we recorded about two weeks afterwards I mean they were just, if there's, you know, if there's anybody I would love to get work out of this film afterwards, it's, it's those two, because mm. they really, really deserve it. Rona Wilkie was also Folk Musician of the Year, I think, not so many okay. years ago. So how did you... I mean, is it just over the years you hear about these people and you think, that's who I want to work with, or is there a bit of luck involved in it? Or? I think they were, they were performing at the Storytelling Centre. Right. Uh, one evening that I was filming there I think it was during the referendum okay um, and and I just thought god these two are having so much fun on the stage and they're yes. obviously very very able as well so I just took the phone numbers afterwards <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Mary McFadden who gave me the phone numbers um, and just called them up when I felt I needed them when I felt that the Icelandic fantasy sort of elfin music wasn't 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 reaching the parts of the film that I needed it to um, and you also said uh, before we started that I was I was showing surprise that it took six months to edit, but you said mm. six months is about right for editing. That's anything. absolutely right, yeah. And it's really interesting because at the moment I'm doing a short commission for the Scottish Film Talent Network, which is a fiction film, so I've crossed over. <laughs> um, and it's really odd. I thought it would be much easier because I wouldn't have to spend months and months editing, but actually you just have to spend months writing a script and revising it until it's right, so the edit's kind of foolproof by so the time you get there. So the edit's done in the writing? Yes, really. Oh, that yeah. is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, what got you into making film? What were your influences? Why did you decide to do it? I think I was just conflicted and confused, and I was good at English and good at painting. <laughs> and <laughs> so I just brought them together and it just seemed the easiest uh, un- unfussiest way to, to, to pursue a, a livelihood well um, I think we're going to leave it there but just want to say thanks Lou for talking to us thank you for writing such a beautiful review do you realise that you're the only person that noticed the first part of the film was based in water had a, had a water element behind it uh, I didn't realise you're the that only really person much. that's noticed it it was, it was such a layered interview it was a real joy to read you just thought okay all my effort hasn't been wasted here <laughs> <laughs> well I'm glad I mean, as you can tell from the review I absolutely loved it did, did, you, did you pick out what the second half of the film's element was no but I'm going to have to go back now <laughs> Um, As I say, thank you very much and uh, we'll be back very soon with someone um, completely different. Cheers. The answer was fire, by the way, if you're interested. Um, Well, that was our chat with Lou McLaughlin. Um, I hope you found it uh, as interesting to listen to as I did uh, in the day. I hope the background noise um, wasn't too much. We recorded it in Glasgow's Project Cafe and uh, certainly to begin with there's quite a lot of banging and clattering going on but I think you can probably pick us up um, clear enough and um, that you'll have found something to interest you. As I say, Glasgow Film Festival um, is underway and we're going to have a few non audio interviews with various directors of 
um, some of the films on show and they'll be um, over at Scott's Way as well. Until then and until next time, um, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.